This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good. What I'm you drinking? Lot. I'm into these non-alcoholic IPAs. Um, oh, finally made do not Do you not drink? I gave it up about two and a half years ago. Um, I do a lot of trail running and I I just don't recover well from when I have like more than two drinks. I, I wake up the next day and I'm just wrecked physically. So um yeah, I, I gave up alcohol and yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I uh work out in the gym a lot, you know, and mm-hmm. uh and then so but I would don't know if alcohol affects my performance or not because i've never tried doing anything without it yeah yeah it's um <laughs> you the next morning when i do i, I just I'm physically wrecked so uh they like you ever hear that joke like i didn't know he drank until i saw him sober <laughs> no that's good though <laughs> a while back i was this was a this is I, th- I was thinking about this while I was hunting, so it's pertinent. I was trying to work through the difference between two fictional characters. Doug, who has to drink to have a good time. You've heard that saying before. Mm-hmm. Oh, Doug, he's one of these guys that has to drink to have a good time. Yeah. And Sam, who has to stay sober to have a bad time. (laughs) Brothers. Well, so, like, there's a difference, you know? Like, Sam has to stay sober to have a bad time. No, let's do it the other way. Doug, Doug has to get drunk to have a good time. Yeah. Doug is sober. They're the same animal. No, they're not. No, they're not. Let me walk you through this. Okay. Doug, ha- Doug has to get drunk to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Doug is drunk. Is he having a good time? Uh, you don't know. You do- Right. Okay. Sure. Right. S- Sam has to stay sober. To have a bad time, Sam mm-hmm. is drunk. Is Sam having a good time? You don't know. Yes, you do. He has to stay sober to have a bad time, and he's drunk. He could still be having a bad time. No, he, he has to stay sober to have a bad time, and he's drunk. Mm. Uh, he has. Okay. Okay. So one of them yeah. has... So there's a having difference. a bad time is predicated on being sober. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, and I've, then I was thinking about which <laughs> I'd rather, which alcohol habit I'd rather have. You know, um, would I rather be a guy that is guaranteed? Doug is going to have a real problem with alcohol because if he gets drunk, he's guaranteed to have a good time. How how far do you want to extrapolate on this? <laughs> I mean, we can get into liver disease if you want. 
<laughs> you know, okay. Enough about that. Anyways, um, hey, I wanted to tell you, I, I watched your uh, your presentation with Pope and Young. It was fantastic. Oh, thanks. I really liked it. I was yeah. a little bit disappointed in the oration. I think I'm I'm used to giving a particular kind of talk, you know, academic talks at conferences. Yeah. And I feel like I do much more smoothly. So I don't know what was what was going on. I felt like I stuttered a lot. No, and, don't don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, it, it was particularly nice with the visuals too, and maybe that's just me. I'm a visual person to begin with, um, but no, it, it was really good to to see it there um, on your slideshow as you're talking through it, and it, it just wasn't that visceral to me. Just listening to the podcast, like I, I knew, you know, inherently that that takes Sitka, you know, they're they're up to some shady shit here and there. But uh, for you to outline specifically what what their holdings are, um, it, it just it left more of an impact on me. So, yeah. for what it's worth, uh, it yeah, yeah, to, yeah I, I I think that there was a lot of shock and awe. Did you have pretty good turnout it, with, with the audience? Well, I, I the audience that was there is like trivial compared to the number of people have seen the talk. There's only about thirty people there. The conference wasn't even well attended. Well, I shouldn't say that. When I was there, it was not well attended. I think I was like an opening act. I was there on Thursday. I gave my presentation on Thursday, and then I left Friday morning. But I saw, I looked at the schedule of events, and some of the bigger names were showing up on Friday. So, and it was, it was quite self-selecting as well. The, the people, I mean... You, you you have to admit that you can tell a little bit about what somebody's bl belief system is by the way they look. A little bit. Like all the tatted up kind of bro bra dudes, none of them mm -hmm. were that I saw in the halls. None of them were in the talk. It was folks that just looked like Joe Schmo Hunter. Yeah, man, I, I I hear what you're saying. Um, well, the, the bro, the bro, bro people I'm talking about were also the ones manning the boots, like selling products. Okay, know? okay, that, yeah. So that, that is a little telling. I mean, part of I was thinking part of it might be generational, and and in that you could have a bunch of old guys who are retired and can afford to take the time off and hang out at these things in the first place. But if you got a bunch of uh, guys who are younger and volunteering their time, well, it, you know, that may say something um, if, if they're not actually attending your presentation or, or maybe yeah, but they're more. It was more either. the older crowd that for sure that was yeah. there. Now, it wasn't exclusively, but definitely, definitely that bit of that, uh, but on the higher end of the bell curve in terms of the ages represented at the conference. And everybody, I mean, a bunch of people came up to me afterwards and a few of them like expressed extreme gratitude, which is something I become accustomed to because there is a segment of people yeah. out there that have, have been thinking the same sorts of things as me 
for probably longer than I have, you know? I think so. And I just thought, I yeah, I thought it, I thought it was going to be, I was going to have more of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I thought, and not because it's just because only because I'm the one that took up the message. It, you know, so mm-hmm. I still get emails where like, thank you. Finally, someone's saying what needs to be said. Yeah. I got a little of that. Nobody challenged me on anything after the talk. I, I was I was hoping they were going to include some Q and A at the end, and I wanted to to kind of gauge what the crowd sentiment was. It was it was very they were they were very complimentary. That's good. But like I say, I think it was the people that would have taken issue with uh, my stances probably didn't just chose not to go to the talk. The thing is, it's 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 hard to argue. It's hard to argue against me on this these topics, not because I'm a good arguer, but because what I'm saying is is so easy to defend. That's why I'm here. You know, it's 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 a logical argument, you know. Yeah. It, it, once I heard it from you, and um, and you laid it out step by step, it just everything fell into place, and you can't unsee that. You know. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. have to be horribly biased to to consider otherwise. Yeah. Man, I got the thing going on tomorrow. That that a uh, podcast going on tomorrow with you ever watch or listen to the blood origins podcast i have yeah yeah i'm going on there with the guy that runs our instagram david Fontenot. okay and um then the next day and oh and we're going to be answering questions that were submitted to Robbie, the host, from the company Land Trust. Have you heard us talk about them? I have. And and I was wondering how that relationship uh, with that podcast had, had gone since they started sponsoring, uh, since they became sponsored by Land Trust. If, if yeah. they suddenly became hostile or anything. If they have you on, that that says something right there. Yeah, so. then, then, then we submitted questions to Robbie and land trust is coming on the next day and answering our questions. And then they're going to drop both the episodes simultaneously. Fantastic. The original idea, I David's the one that set all this up and I would have much preferred to just go on with them, but they consider me too much of a loose cannon to, to oh. go on with me at, at the same time. But so and the reason I'm bringing all this up is they're going to make some points that I I don't know what you say. I, I, I'm trying to work through how to say it. They're going to say, well, you pay. I, I'm anticipating that Rob and Robbie's going to try to steal man their argument. He's also going to try to 
steel my man hours to them. You but have I mean, to. I, the steel manning isn't. I, I'm a little. I'm a little concerned that it won't be as full throated because he's taken money from them. You know, but I worry about that. Uh, one argument they're going to make is. What about you? When you go to a national park, you pay to go in the national park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you do with that? We I guess all it's pay like, taxes to support public land because it's our right as Americans to access them at any given time. I I could make the argument that the the additional fees we pay to enter those parks are for the actual wear and tear we put on the road systems, the toilets, whatever. Yeah. Um, the, the the baseline taxes can be for the the inherent right as an American. Okay. I guess uh, it's like I guess I'd be like, you're what you guys are doing is instituting a mechanism whereby I people have to pay for something yeah. that they didn't used to have to pay for, and you profit off of it. That's right. So that's that's the difference, I guess, you know? Yeah. Uh, these guys are terrifying me though. Cause all I just don't I don't value pay hunting. Um I don't either. It, the, the thing about money is it's it's a wild card, right? In in that it substitutes for virtually anything. And and when hard work yeah, it, it substitutes also relationships. That's something I wanted to dive into with my notes, but you know, uh, I I view a, a good way of of measuring the quality of your life. This is one way of looking at it is is by assessing the relationships you have, right? And it can be person to person. Unfortunately, I think most of us have some sort of relationship with our phones. Um, I told you I'm a trail runner. I I, I view my relationship to the natural world is something pretty special. And, and in trail running, I, I kind of view it as a dance partner in a lot of ways, you know, you're the, the trail kind of dictates the line you're going to pick um, the incline and all that's going to dictate how fast or slow you go and that, that sort of thing. It's, there's some level of intimacy there. And, and it's, a dance with, it's a dance with the trail. Yeah, exactly. It's somewhat intimate in a way. Yeah. You take hunting and and this is specifically deriving some amount of your diet, your, your actual, your, um, what you, what sustains you, you're deriving some amount of your food from that. That, That's taking the intimacy, the intimacy to the whole new level, you know? Yeah. It's precious. And, and you first use the word sacred to describe it. That's something I have, I have always used in my own head to describe it too. And I hear a lot of hunters say that, that being outside back in the wilderness or wherever is their church. 
So mm-hmm. I, I equate that as the equivalent of what, what I've been feeling all along and what, what you articulated early on in the podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, so for, so for them to, uh, to put a price tag on access, it's, it's like, it's like selling tickets to go to church. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it really is. I just can't, yeah. I can't imagine what it would feel like to go. That's a good analogy. That's a very good analogy. I just, I just can't imagine what it would go feel like to go like hunt some property for a few days. And then at the end, go up, bang on the door and stroke a check. It's just, it just feels <laughs> ugly. And, and I worry too, because, because there's a financial transaction there. I, I can imagine there's some sect of, of our hunting community that, that feels a great deal of entitlement. And as soon as you pay for something, it's it's the golden ticket to run wild and do whatever you want. Now, I, I don't know if if uh, you said Nature Conservancy is one behind this. No, behind Land Trust? Land Trust, I'm sorry. Um, no, I, I don't know if Land Trust has a set of rules. I imagine they do to some degree. You can't go, I'm, I'm guessing that you can't go tearing around with your four wheeler off road or anything like that. But yeah, I, I should, I should know. I should hire or not hire. I should gift somebody a land trust hunt and they could go in and doing some internal um, investigative reporting. I'd love to know, but I, I imagine there's some amount of hunters who, who feel they have a golden ticket because damn it, they paid for it. And and they're going to take full advantage and and abuse the landscape and the wildlife to some degree. There's some sociology research that would suggest that you're right. I remember reading the abstracts in a couple studies about trophy hunting and how there's some evidence that hunters will do something when abroad or on a hunt that they wouldn't normally do, mm-hmm. like that are ethically dicey there's a name for that like that your normal set of ethical principles kind of get suspended a bit when you're outside your day-to-day i i'd love to know what the term is but i have to think it's because in that case money has substituted whatever other relationship you had you know whereas if if you're just meeting with a landowner it, it, there's immediately that person to person interaction, you know, yep. whether he explicitly states the rules of the land or not, that person to person interaction instills accountability. You yeah. Know I mean? But if you, if you just hand over the money, there's no relationship there. Yeah. It's, it's I, I can, I can, I can feel that in my bones. And if you're paying for it, you're going to be, you you are going to feel pretty entitled. Yeah. I feel it too. I, I I'm not endorsing it. Yeah. But I, I can I can sense how someone would go down that road. Yeah. I re- re- recently interacted have been re- interacting with ranchers and farmers in two ways. Uh, uh, about a month ago I wanted to turkey hunt these two places that I've 
turkey hunted a number of times and i always dread even though i like these two dudes a lot that own these ranches i dread calling them up and asking them if i can go out there you know mm-hmm. and then more recently i've been lining up these work projects for our hunters for access program mm-hmm. and when i call a rancher to be like hey we want to do a work project on your ranch to say thanks for you being in rolling block management yeah <laughs> i am excited to dial the number then you know what i because, mean because is it because uh it's it's asking for something very very precious to you versus offering a gift yeah i, yeah. I assume so yeah 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 it's exactly it I know what you mean. Is there any trepidation on on their parts? Um, worried that that they're going to get a bunch of people who uh, who don't know what they're in for, or, or are they pretty pretty enthusiastic about the help? We barely, we almost just kept this to raise the money to give them appreciation gifts because we barely, we were very concerned they wouldn't want the help. But man, do they want the help? Good. It's crazy. It's crazy. We had, we had to, I had to call off the troops. There's, we're trying to do six or seven projects. We had six or seven team leaders and we had 40 ranches. And we said, okay, each person's going to call six or seven ranches. And I made my calls and two of the other guys made their calls. And I had to contact everyone and said, say, stop calling. We're going to have to figure this out because even if you say the goal was to say we, we don't know yet if we're going to be coming out there or not it depends if there's a lot of interest we might have to do a drawing yeah but as soon as you start the conversation they're like oh i'm so glad this is such a great gesture we could really help use the help with and so you, now you can't can't call them back and say you're not coming. Oh, yeah. To pull it back is, is the worst insult. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, go to montanahuntersforaccess.org and sign up to, to do a work day. Please. Yeah. We need the help. I'm, I'm guessing you do that throughout the summer then? Yeah. This will be the first summer, right? We've been doing it informally for a few years. We're just some guys around the little town I live in mm-hmm. go out on a place or two. Uh, but, uh, this time, this is the first year where it's, it's formal. Um, it's kind of fun. It's a lot of work, but it's kind of fun. Just knowing you're doing something to combat the privatization. Yes, absolutely. And and there's something about getting the community of like-minded hunters together as a group and doing something productive, you know, and and too, that's, it feels good. Yeah. A few of these people want stuff specifically in June. Weed scouting. Somebody mm-hmm. wants some weed scouting done. Somebody wants their shelter belt weeded and mowed. Somebody wants some fence fixed and they need it fixed in June because they're going to kick out some cows in this pasture. But yeah. my hope is that the rest of the projects could all be the same weekend. So we could have a big old camp out at my house, you know. That'd be cool. Yeah. Because yeah, like because like you say, like and and I have that. I have that. I'm not like a clubby type person, but I do like hanging out with my tri- my tribe, that's my fellow it. honors. You know? That's it. 
And 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 the thing about ranchers, I mean, it's it's stereotypical about how how hard they work. And so if they're putting their trust in you and believing that you're going to be a net benefit to them on the landscape, you want to bust your ass so hard to prove yourself to them, you know? Yeah. I, it, I think it brings the best out of us too. This thing has legs. It it I think there's a there's a Kansas chapter now, and there's talk of some, in some other states. And I can say that without bragging because it's not my idea. It's my dear friend John Coombs's idea uh, that who's been on the podcast a few times. Mm-hmm. It, and it 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 simulates the old way that people used to get access. That's you know. It. Yep. Yep. That we human lost thing. the tie to the egg community because most people live in a town and they're a ways away from ag and that, so this well that know, and and ranches are getting eaten up by these these giant industrial ag operations and man that that terrifies me yeah you know where it's just monocrop for as far as the eye can see there's no habitat there yeah 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 I, uh, yeah i have a friend that one of my very very closest friends that lives in North Dakota, and that's what happened in his area. That the deer numbers are a shell of what they used to be. The upland game birds, shell what the, of what they used to be. What What's part that? of North Dakota? He lives in Harvey. I know Harvey. It, oh, you do? Yeah. How would you describe that? Where that is? Small town. I want to say in the right around the center of the state. Yeah. Okay, I'll buy that. So yeah. Prairie Pothole region would be my guess. Um, yeah. 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 Great. Duck factory, but uh, you, you want to talk pothole region? I, it sounds like that's getting seized up by. Oh, that's by right. You're season. from North Dakota. I grew up in uh, North Dakota, living yeah. in Washington now. Yeah. yeah. And spent four years in North Idaho, too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know where, well, you know all this country, you know, and where I live, the, the industrial egg thing isn't having the impact because it's there's the the egg is yeah it's right it's too dry there's not it's not widespread egg it's little pockets along the river of or irrigated pasture here and there intermixed with tons of rangeland yeah so yeah it's great country yeah, I love it. I I grew up hunting the west side of North Dakota, like right as you get into the Badlands there. Oh, and it's it's a special spot. It really yeah. is. Yeah. What's it like? And how long have you been in Washington? You, yeah. What's what city are you in? Um, I'm in Olympia here. Okay. So west side, just on the south end of the Sound. There, been okay. here for five and a half years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, I'm I'm a small city, small town guy. I, I grew up a couple miles out of a small town, so I'm. Yeah, I, I miss the countryside. We we are on the edge of town here. We uh, we kind of butt up against some private timberland, and and the owners are pretty good about uh, letting mountain bikers and trail runners go in there and build some trails. And, oh, that's cool. Uh, generally recreate. So we lucked out with where we are, but but it's not the same as truly living out in the country and. I'm always going to miss that. Yeah. What do you do for a living? I work. I told me, but 
Yeah, North Dakota Department, North Dakota, <laughs> uh, Washington State Department of Health um, with their shellfish program. Shellfish program, right? Yeah, yeah. So what are you What are you doing with that? Um, what's, what's your role? Uh, I'm one of two shoreline survey leads, and and so we've got like 115 different shellfish growing areas. Um, mm -hmm. We're evaluating inland. Uh, pollution sources that could find a drainage or otherwise drain down into those tidelands and and impact shellfish sanitation. You know, oysters, mussels, all of them um, are filter feeders. They they take up any any pollutants that are in the water. So, you know, from from an aquaculture standpoint, if you have contaminated shellfish hitting the market, you could have a lot of people getting sick. And so, all your monitoring is on areas where they're doing commercial growing we, of these we we do look at rec beaches too recreational oh, um okay. but, but primarily um commercial growing areas okay yeah yeah uh, i'll be right back give me one second i'm gonna go i'm gonna go get me another drink yeah you know the drinking gets worse when i'm sleep deprived and i got I had to get up like five o'clock this morning go to a, a coal mine and seed a bunch of plots so yeah. for a heavy drink i remember, I remember you seeing something about um you were working on a statistical model about um grass seed oh uh, yeah, yeah 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 I, the, yeah the science geek in me is really really curious about that oh so. that is that's my that is my that's my magnum opus man it's it, it it were it, it was nine point nine parts logic and one part empiricism, and I loved it for that reason because so much of that project should this the project or the goal is to try to figure out how the density of plants seeded plants like plants per meter squared or per acre mm -hmm. or whatever how it changes as the number of constituents varieties species mm -hmm. biotypes what have you in the seed mix increase and there's a bunch of it turns out there's a bunch you can say in advance of having any observations and you're looking specifically around mile city or well like i say a lot that part of it doesn't it doesn't matter that's what the beauty of it is interesting it's so general that it doesn't matter where you're looking Oh, that's fascinating. So yeah. you're looking at the species species interactions. Well, no. Okay, this is early after seeding before they kick in. Okay. Let, let me go get a, get a, a drink, drink and we'll talk. Yeah. yeah. Uh these are these are very young plants. So and they're and they're not going undergoing any kind of competitive interactions with themselves okay. at all um or at least that's the assumption and it's a rock solid one because in a typical system when when the plants come up they're extremely small and they're surrounded by a sea of weeds so they're certainly not being impacted by this scraggly little uh, another scraggly little seeded plant 
a foot away or two feet away. Right. So th there's no competitive interactions going on. What, what, I, what, what I demonstrated, and you could get, you could see this intuitively without any math, but I just was able to work out the fine points with math. As the number of species and varieties go up, and and they're seeded at more even rates, so lots of species with the total seed rate divided evenly among the species and varieties, the probability of low densities declines. The probability of very high densities declines as well, but it's the low densities you got to worry about in a it, when you're trying to establish a stand of perennial plants because that'll lead to an establishment failure so that was the what i i figured out so if you have a seed catalog and you know nothing about the survival rates of all the species in there the best thing you could do and they're all equally desirable then the best thing you do is buy a little bit of all of them and they'll stabilize on their own and then, well, you'll, if you buy a little bit of all of them, you'll minimize the chances that you end up with exceedingly low densities. Plus, there's the added virtue that you're going to have higher, greater biodiversity. So, yeah. uh, and then, but a lot of times you'll have a priori knowledge about which ones do best. And, but then, and then you can, Let's say that you had two groups of plants. One one group of species you knew do did better on average, but you didn't have any way of adjudicating amongst those species. You're like, this is the good group. And then you had a, a weaker group, and you didn't have a way of adjudicating among them. You get the guarantee for each group independently. So if you take the good group, and you divide the seed rate evenly as among as many of the constituents from that group as possible, you'll minimize the chances that they develop low densities and lead to get us have establishment failures. And you get the guarantee for the wheat group as well by doing the same thing. Oh, that's interesting. The weeds too. And how much it matters depends on how much the survival rates vary among the species and varieties. The more they vary the more seeding, the more they vary, the, the, the more important it is to seed a bunch of them. So we did two four-year studies, one in California and one in Montana, to quantify how much the survival probabilities vary among the species in the seed catalogs. And they vary, they vary a lot. So it matters a lot. Like it, you could imagine if the survival probabilities didn't vary at all among any of the species, none of the things I would say would matter. Right. Right. About seeding, seeding more species. Everything I'm saying right now, it, you have to, this, I, this, this is very late in the conversation to be saying this, but everything I'm saying is about you're holding the total seed rate constant. Oh, Okay. So we're not talking about increasing the cost of the seed or something like that, or the rate. We're saying, you decide what the rate is. I'm going to tell you 
how many species to include in it and varieties and how to divide the total seed rate among the species and varieties in a way that minimizes the chances of low densities. And the best way to minimize the chances of low densities and establishment failures is to seed all of them at an even rate. And then if you know something about the survival rates, then yeah. you have this, then you have, you partition the seed rate into two. You're like, these ones I know do good. These other ones don't establish as well, but they're really important to have in the stand. Then you partition the seed rate in two and you do the allocation like I just described, but you do it independently for each one. So that's the idea. Yeah. That's cool. And and I'm surprised that it, it works regardless of where you've you've experienced it, it has it has to. You can write down what the mean density is as you there's a the you can write down the, the the formula for the mean density, and we're talking about means over seed mixes. Let's say you had a seed catalog that was very simple. Okay. Let's say it's a seed catalog with three species in it. That's it. Or even simpler than that, three varieties of one species. It doesn't yeah. matter. It all comes out the same. Hmm. You have six potential seed mixes. You could devote all the seed to species A, all to B, all to C. You could divide the seed rate evenly among A and B, A and C, or B and C, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. now we're at five seed mix mixes. And or you could divide or you could allocate one third of the seed rate to eat to A, B, and C. So there's six seed mixes. The mean of those six seed mixes will be the same. It'll be the total seed rate times the mean survival probability of the six species. But the variance declines as the number of species increases. And you can write down the formula for the variance. Um, so the variability among the six. Or the vari variability among the one species mixes is greater than the variability among the two species mixes. And the variability among the three species mix is zero because there's only one mix, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So, yep. and you can write down that variance. It took me a long time to write it down. <laughs> I had to do some serious homework to nail that puppy down. But <laughs> that's cool. Uh, um, so, like I say, you get you get all that. Just you know what Hume's fork is? No. Do uh, you know who David Hume was? I don't. Scottish, uh, Scottish philosopher. Uh -uh. So his idea was, and it's not, he wasn't the first one to say this. It's, it gets articulated in different ways by different philosophers. Is that there's, there's two kinds of statements you can make. There are... Um, Analytic statements is one way of saying it. That's one thing you'll hear thrown around. Mm -hmm. Or or they're they're also called tautologies. They're things that have to be true. They're, they're true by virtue of the meaning of the words involved. Like two plus two is four. Yeah. Is yeah. a is an analytic proposition. Right. Or 
Um, and you could combine them like all men are mortal. Socrates was a man. Socrates is therefore mortal, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't need any empirical content. Then you have statements like the mean height, the average height of a cottonwood tree is 35 feet. They're contingent. It could be otherwise. And it required right. you to go and look and see, you know? Uh, so that's what this project is. It's it's nine tenths, it was nine tenths analytic statements, things that were true by virtue of the meaning of the words involved. And then mm -hmm. the empirical bit was, like I say, how much all this matters is how much the survival probabilities vary among the species and varieties. And that's something you have to measure. Um, do you know who uh, Emmanuel Kant was? Yeah. Is another okay so prussian philosopher he kind of he read he read hume when he was quite young and i think this was like in the 1730s or something like that and he says of hume he says that hume awoke, awoken him awoke him from his dogmatic slumber um he was he found hume to be really on to something but then Kant went on to describe what he considered to be synthetic a priori statements so these are statements that have to be true but you discover them but but they're but they're not tautologies. It gets really complicated. Like that, a lot all of our experience presupposes a spatial, temporal, um, set of circumstances. So, like there, it gets really mm -hmm. complicated at this point. I find it easy to understand until we get to this point. But I heard a philosophy instructor once say that. I wish I wouldn't even have gone into that because it gets so tricky that I don't even understand it. So I shouldn't be describing it to you. But um, a philosophy instructor say that if he can get only if the only thing he can do is get his students to understand the difference between an analytic statement and a synthetic statement, that he felt like he felt like he had that it was a worthwhile class. I got to re-listen to this podcast afterwards and <laughs> go over that. Well, like the I said, analytic is two by two, two, two plus, or like a, a right triangle. You know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Yep. It's not like that that Pythagoras substantiated that by measuring a bunch of right triangles. It wasn't something. Right. <laughs> right. It's an, a, a feat of pure just brute force logic it has to be that way oh, okay so i i think i think this question is pretty relevant and and i heard it pitched a while ago and i'm curious what your take is did did we invent or discover mathematics yeah i've i've, I've watched youtube about where people are talking about that i don't know i'm not smart enough to <sighs> yeah i don't know like if there was a which which one what's a way you could operationalize that question if if we invented it then 
you know, there's life. I I can't imagine there's not more life out there somewhere in, on a, in other planet. Probably yeah. many, many, many of them. I would guess. And statistically, there must be. Yeah, at least based on our statistics. Yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. statistics if our statistical approaches, statistics being a branch of math, are invented. Right. <laughs> not discovered. <laughs> this is getting deep now. Yeah. But uh, so I guess in order it it would if so if uh an alien civilization's mathematics, their formal logic, as it were, mm-hmm. is incommensurate with ours, then you could say then that'd be evidence that math is invented. Yeah. Yeah, yes. but if there's this, if all the calculus books are, once you get done with the transit translation, are the basically the same, then it then it would seem more like a discovery. But I don't know. What do people well, say? What What do people in the know say about that? Do you know? I I don't know. No, I just heard the question pitch, and I've been chewing on that for a while. Yeah, I wonder if some of the luminaries of our time disagree on it i'd love to know yeah i i don't know it it seems that uh, until we meet another civilization that operates differently we have to assume that we discovered it yeah is what i'm doing it's funny philosophers they're all so damn smart and and they disagree. You know, no two major thinkers in philosophy ever agreed on anything. Mm-hmm. So it, it just it makes it, it's like even the people that are, are, are probing most deeply, and physicists too, you know, some people hate mm-hmm. string theory and thinks it's a bunch of nonsense, and then other people think that it's going to unify what, unify, uh, quantum mechanics and and relativity at some point you know yeah Yeah. all these domain i guess it's it's a testament to how difficult it must be to be operating at the outward expanse of what's known i imagine so but it must be so rewarding too oh yeah once you remove the ego you know yeah yeah oh it's gotta be I'm sure that's what drives them. Yeah. And here I am fucking around with seeds. Keep at it. Someone's <laughs> got to do it. There's some physicist one time. I think his name was Wheeler. And he was, he was, he wasn't a theoretician. He was some kind of, he was some kind of uh, experimental physicist. Maybe he worked on one of the earliest, uh, particle accelerators i think that that might be true okay and he said the only science is physics everything else is butterfly collecting <laughs> I, I get it i mean it's <laughs> it's all predicated on that right yeah yeah i yeah I, i've kind of i don't know if it's correct or not but i've, I've always thought of uh math as the language to physics and mm. physics is what what controls chemistry chemistry is what controls biology from biology mm-hmm. you've got ecology and you know all the other biosciences do you look for hmm? 
Do you look for um, paralytic shellfish poisoning? We we have a separate biotoxin team that that looks into that. Um, yeah, they're they're really good at that. There, my family has this cabin on Prince of Wales Island. Mm-hmm. I w- if we could nail down whether or not those shellfish were safe or not, it would be a limitless food source. I I wonder what Alaska's Department of Health has on that. Um, we have an interactive map that's available to the public that that shows closures, what's open, et cetera, um, and we update that very quickly when when something. Okay. Well, there's um, a monitoring station in Ketchikan, which is the closest town. Mm-hmm. It's it's twenty five miles east of our cabin and then there's a little indian village is that not pc i don't know if it is or not to say that but but there's a little village yeah called kasan about seven miles away and there's a monitoring station there yeah but we're always like i don't know was that close enough are they monitoring specifically for algal blooms I don't know. I don't know if they're looking at the muscles themselves or okay. if they're looking for the the blooms. Um, we we specifically we have a bunch of monitoring stations uh, throughout the Sound and Pacific Coast, and, and we're only looking at fecal coliform as an indicator species. Oh, uh, okay. We, we have uh, limits set forth by FDA that okay. that dictate how we have to classify various areas. Um, what is your day to day going out and digging up the clams or are you in a lab or what? No, it's uh, a, a lot of the pollution sources. We end up um, evaluating our, our onsite septic systems that are fairly close to the shoreline. Oh, uh, okay. We're also looking at agricultural op, uh, operations, uh, wastewater treatment plants and their outfalls. We, we keep close tabs on that sort of stuff. Um, a lot of it's set up so that if if there is a failure of any sort identified by a wastewater treatment plant um, or or a local health jurisdiction, a county, a tribe, whatever, they call into us and let us know what's going on, and then we act on our end. They've got I a whole, whole call list where they're they're calling us Department of Ecology, you know, the local health department, so that we can all act on our. Um, our assigned roles. Uh, do you like to dig up clams? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Love going after razor clams out on the coast here. We're about an hour, hour and a half away from the shoreline. Mm. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I've only done it once in my life. I was in Hood River and visiting yeah. some friends. My wife and I were there. It was three years ago. And we got a map. Of where from, I guess the the Forest Service of potential clam beds. We're okay. driving out there. It was around Christmas time. We're driving out there, and there's just every pullout has. It was a gorgeous day. Dozens yeah. of cars. Every parking lot's about full. I'm like, yeah, right. Like you're gonna go down on the beach and dig up clams. There's just gonna be people everywhere. We get there. We go go right where the map says to go. Yep. There's not anyone there. 
There's no evidence that anybody's been there. There's no holes. And we dug up. We eat clams for three days. It's it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the, the tide washes all the signs clean, you know. So you're you're looking at a a relatively undisturbed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in Washington, you have specific access points where you can drive out onto the beach park, and it's it's just a giant party <laughs> on the shoreline. And, and it's so kid-friendly too. So you got families and uh just masses of people out on the shoreline and, and everyone's having a good time, you're probably gonna limit, you yeah. know. So yeah, strangers will kind of point out some some shows where, where you see the where they've been spurting out their water there. They'll point out some shows oh. from stranger if they've limited and okay. It's, it's the opposite of combat fishing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's everybody's working together. Yeah. It's, it's us against the clams. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty great. And then you got to keep an eye on the, the waves coming in too, because every seventh one is that sneaker one that, that hits you extra hard. Oh. So. We we were in a con I feel like we we were in a estuary. Oh, interesting. I know we were. We weren't in the we weren't facing the beach. I mean, if, if we, you go, if you, ha, if we had gone east from the parking lot, we would have been out on the ocean. Yeah. But we, instead we went, I mean west, but instead we went east from the parking lot and we ended up in this little canal that was very uh, sheltered. Oh, cool. It, it, you're and going after razor clams, right? No, we were oh. getting soft shell clams oh. and purple varnish clams. Okay. Cool. Have you ever? You, I'm sure in your work you've encountered those. I've right? I've never tried those. Um, no, we we just bass, bass little sons of bitches, man. You got to be scooping quick. Really? Yeah, yeah. We, Are we, razor we clams like that? Do you use Are, a, one of those clam guns? No, 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 no. Like pipe? you use for gooey ducks. No, uh, not not the jets. Uh, for razor clams, it's it's um, I want to say maybe six inch PVC that's capped on one end and it's got a handle. No, and, we... um, and a little thumb valve on that that cap. So you you're looking for that little show in the sand, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a little tiny little crater that indicates a, a clam's buried down there, and you you can kind of tap the ground and and as soon as they feel those vibrations. They start jetting water as they come uh, further. Down. Okay, and and so you're just you're burrowing that that PVC pipe down around them to get a core sample. And yes, once you get right, something like three. I've feet never up, seen it, but I know that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You put your thumb over that valve and you pull that core sample out, and hopefully you have a clam in there. <laughs> That's a much more elegant approach. We Some had people two do shovels too. <laughs> yeah, we had that's what we, we had two tools. We had tenacity and shovels. That works. <laughs> yeah, I think the last time we did it, this dog started catching on, and she started kind of digging in there a little bit tentatively, like <laughs> dig down here, and something's going to come up. Right? She was starting to figure that's it out. Hilarious! I was really impressed. <laughs> She's not the smartest dog, but yeah, she she was starting to piece it together. <laughs> yeah. So, Kind of yeah. half tentatively, like we, we dig down here, right? Okay, we <laughs> do it right. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. yeah, it's funny what dogs can pick up. And oh yeah, it is yeah. amazing what they can kind of piece together. 
I love them over time. I really do. What uh, kind of dog do you have? She's a mutt. Um, we we did swab her cheek a while back, and it, it came back as mostly Shiba Inu. But they're the the purebred is supposed to be something like twenty five pounds, and she's forty. What's a Shiba Inu? A Shiba Inu is a she looks like a blonde coyote. Really, I, I don't know how else to describe her. Um, her coat looks like a toasted marshmallow. Shiba Inu. Yeah. S H I B A space I N U. It's a Japanese breed, apparently a really old one, but we just got her because she's she was a rescue and she was cute. So for the the great price of 25 bucks, we uh we took her home. Uh yeah, cute is pretty. Oh, look at that little dog. Yeah, like a foxy face, and yeah, she's just bigger oh, than Oh, I would, yeah. Like yeah. the older I get, the more I just like them all. That's how I am too. I I don't know if I'm getting soft or what, but I just I'm yeah, I'm just not the the intense hunter I used to be as a teenager. I'm just soft and squishy, I guess, like a teddy bear. My, my wife, my wife puts herself out there as somebody that hates dogs. <laughs> it's just this. It's just this facade. E- e with my dog, I'll catch her just laying up. You know, my wife and I don't live together. But I'll just catch her when she doesn't know I'm gonna come out of the bedroom or whatever, and she's in the living room, laying on the ground, petting my dog, and um, or I'll come home from work when she's visiting me, and I'll, she'll be out in the yard with my dog. And mm-hmm. and she always says, if if she wasn't so fucking cute. <laughs> but they have personalities too, you know, you get to know them and, and you yeah. get to feel oh, how they, they are truly, truly man's best friend. I think I tried to look yeah. up who said that originally and I couldn't I don't think it's known. But this is a good looking dog. Yeah. Hell yeah, they're cool. If if Shifty, if I outlive Shifty, God forbid, I might look into one of these. It looks like you'd be staring at its anus a lot, though. Like, it's yeah, got its tail that's, off. That's the downside. We call it the Eye of Sauron. Because I swear <laughs> she, she points it at you. <laughs> so that's the thing. Their their tail's always curled up over their back like Every that. Every freaking time. Sure, hers doesn't corkscrew like that. But, uh, yeah, it's it's up. It's funny because she's in the backyard half the time and uh, we got these big ferns out here and some trees and, and all you see is that tail going through the ferns. So oh. we also call her a fern shark. You know, <laughs> she doesn't think we can see her, but it could be like midnight. And for whatever reason, she's out there and we poke her heads out and we're calling for her. And you just see this, this little furry fin sticking out of the ferns and she swears we don't see her. She just holds still. They're going to leave me alone if I just hold still. Do you know what the name means in Japanese? I think uh, little brush dog. Yeah, brushwood so. dog. Yeah, yeah, they were used to, I think, chase rabbits. I want to say they were an old hunting dog, but okay. she doesn't have, she she has a prey drive definitely. Okay, she's she's all about the squirrels, but um, like a Japanese beagle, pretty much. Yeah, she's cute, boxy face. Yeah, very cute. Yeah. My dog's got a fox face, too. Yeah. I don't like snub-nosed dogs. Well, I don't know. If I had one for a week, then I'd probably think that they were the best. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, my, my I have a friend that has a French bulldog. My God, that is just an impractical face. It, like it all, is. It just looks like a. It looks a like butt. the face of a creature that would would need a CPAP machine. It, it, yeah, it looks kind of like a butt. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> but yeah they they do have really cool personalities though i i have a buddy who who has one of those and uh yeah they're just they're funny he was uh he just randomly looked out the window one day and he's just the dog's bouncing on a trampoline why oh why <laughs> wow yeah just just being a goofball wow yeah Man, a while back I saw this video. It just fucking destroyed me. It was this lab-looking dog mm -hmm. and this little shit-looking rat dog. I don't know what it was, but that little rat dog fell in this pool. And that lab-looking dog, I mean, there's probably this thing's probably got 300 million views. Who knows? I, I'm sure I could find it right now if I look. But is walking around that pool, and you you tell immediately that that little dog was his buddy, and he's so confused, and he's like trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, he, he's not like real spazzy, but he's just following him, the dog around the edge of the pool, and like I, I don't think he's very comfortable in there. This isn't looking good. It's on somebody's, you know, uh, what do you call that? Like cam, that security cam. Oh, gotcha. And, yeah. And eventually, after about five minutes of that, he you, you almost see him switch. He's like, oh, I got to get this dog out of there. And he reaches down and grabs him by the scruff of the neck and pulls that dog out. That's amazing. Stole human. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I have a working theory here. Um, I, I think of the human species. I, I told you on a phone call last week or something how, how I, I try to explain human behavior by by looking back on how we evolved as a species, right? Uh -huh. And I, I see a lot of similarities between humans and wolves and that we're both very social endurance predators, right? Mm, the hierarchy okay. is, is I think, fairly similar in my mind. I think we, we gravitate more toward hot weather, but, you know, you look at like uh, Hadza, um endurance hunters running down a gazelle in in the sahara yeah i i see a lot of similarity there and, and you think about early man first domesticating wolves into dogs he had some i forget what the term is where you have two species that are fairly unrelated but but evolutionary wise they they've kind of paralleled each other in their um in in how they exploit their their individual niches okay I, I see wolves and humans kind of running parallel in that regard. You could throw orcas in there too. Oh wow! Humans, humans then took wolves and made them in our image, in a sense. Yeah. You know, in in selecting for for the best qualities that that best suit us, and and so you have these, I, I would say, humanized wolves, in a lot of ways. Yeah, they're they're human adjacent. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. We took we, the ones that, that we, we took the ones that, yeah, for thousands of years took the ones that we um, liked yep. and 
and, ma- and gave them a evolutionary or natural selection yeah. leg up. Have you ever read Michael Pollan's book, uh, Botany of Desire? No, I haven't read that. It's one. the same idea there that he, he, he chronicles four different plants marijuana, apples, potatoes. Corn, I imagine maize. I, what's that? Maize, maize I think. Yeah. yeah. And the, his premise is that these are plants that have bent us to their will. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. We, by being desirable, we, they got us, you know, obviously they're not thinking this. We've you know, spread so it, remind, it reminds me of that. Reminds me of that. Yeah. There, there was a Nat Geo article a while back. I can try to find it if you're interested where they, um, they, they were looking at, um, breeding domestic foxes. I, I read that article. Yeah. And, in seven generations is all it took. Before yeah, you, they get all these, they breed the mean ones to the mean ones and the yeah. friendly ones to the friendly yeah. ones. And after several generations, the mean ones still look like foxes. Exactly. Where, yeah, the, the ones, the nice ones that are bred to the nice ones, they, they, they become way, way more nice. And they and they develop all these domesticate, these traits that you think of as associated with being associated Dogs. with domestication in general, yeah. like highball colts, like the progenitor yep. of the modern yep. cow or bovine exactly. doesn't Curved have a tails. Uh, yeah. There are a yeah. few other things too. And, and they, they got, ex- they would, they were predisposed to get really excited and friendly toward humans. I mean, that's, that's what we did. We yeah. Did there were one of those, get, one of those scientists, she had one of the living in her, in her apartment. I remember. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful yeah. thing. Oh yeah. Looked like, yeah. Same just a sweetheart of a pet. And, yeah. And, I mean, yeah. I, I hate to call a fox a pet, but at that point, it's it's a domesticated animal, and it's it's a pet. I, I had a fox come into my camp when I was hunting a number of years ago and hang out with me. Oh, cool. It was in the dark, and I don't know how my llamas didn't detect it coming in and have an absolute shit fit, but he came right up to me. And I was making sandwiches, and I I like shared a couple of my sandwiches with him. He just hung out. Yeah. Have you ever watched Grizzly Man? Uh, I did a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite documentary of all time. I think it's brilliant. Um, you know who made that? Um, Herzog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever watched any of his fiction movies? I haven't. No, I don't. Oh, think so. I he's think got that's several. He's made so many movies, but you know, like a lot of documentaries, but also a lot of fiction movies. They're they're spooky as shit. They're great. I know he's um, highly acclaimed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're talking about what? Like one of the the time. I live on Herzog Road, which is a point of pride. Oh, really? Me. Oh, cool. Um, but you remember Timothy Treadwell had hmm. like. Foxes hanging around his tent all the time. I didn't remember that part, but it doesn't surprise me because so often. That's the only seen... reason I didn't think that I was like Grizzly Adams when this fox came in. <laughs> did you ever watch that growing up? Uh, I'm sure I did. It's yeah, it's this show long. about this dude that lived in the mountains with, and he just had a way with animals, and he lived with a grizzly bear, and all the animals loved him. You know, so like, yeah, what I'm yeah. saying, like, I thought, oh, shit, I'm like Grizzly Adams now. 
you know, which would not be a good thing as a hunter. I don't want some elk coming up and acting like we're best buddies. No, no, that gets weird. <laughs> I saw a video the other day where these two, this guy and his son, their first time ever hunting, they're out in the woods, and this little buck comes right up to them and starts chewing on their clothes and licking them and stuff. <sighs> and they, they got, there's somebody's person that put the video out there is commenting through text superimposed over the video and and they're saying things and then they're like first time ever hunting maybe their last <laughs> i'd be like shit man that was me that'd be my that was my first time hunting. I feel like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to. I can't do this anymore. And they didn't. They didn't. I don't know. Maybe there was some antler restriction and they had to be. It was just a tiny little, like, two by two. Holy shit, is there a big old llama fight going out? Oh, really? Outside my house, right? Oh, yeah, it's brutal. They you know, after you shear. Fighting. Oh, they're just freaking chewing on each other's ears. And one of them's trying to sodomize the other one. Oh. I got these three ungelded ones, and I really need to probably think about getting them cut. You don't want to cut them until they're about four years old because it messes up their joints. Oh, but they're and they are four now, and it, I see stuff like that. It makes me think it's time. Mm-hmm. But that was a lot of different non sequiturs right there all together. Sorry about that. I enjoyed it. Um, we haven't talked much about hunting. We haven't. We should probably get into that. Yeah. Do you have some things you want to discuss? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I initially contacted you because um, I, I see bloodlust as as a real issue in in today's hunting culture. Um, let me find my notes here. Um, I don't know if it was always the case, but it, it, with with social media being what it is now, I, I think it's becoming more and more apparent. Uh, I, the the thing that tipped me off twenty some years ago, walking through the Bismarck Shields, was um, they were playing coyote hunting films on on loop on some TV, and and it was hunting coyotes with dogs. And I, I admit. In high school, I I lived for hunting coyotes. I, I can't do it now. I, having a dog, it's it's completely changed me. But but back then, I really got into hunting coyotes. And and I'm watching this looping. Oh, this is really interesting. New take on how to hunt coyotes. And I'm watching and 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 you're watching these two dogs out there um, with a coyote starting to chase them, and the dogs come running back toward the owner and it's something like 200 300 yards out and, and the guy makes a shot and and gut shots this coyote and and when a coyote gets gut shot the tail goes straight out the coyote's biting at the wound and they kind of helicopter around mm-hmm. and immediately the dogs turn around and they're on the coyote they're tearing apart and i'm thinking holy cow this is ugly i i, I understand you make a bad shot sometimes but man that really unfolded in a brutal way it's a highlight reel it it cuts the next coyote and the same thing repeats i'm thinking what the hell two in a row the next one comes around and the same thing repeats again and it it dawns on me by the third one this guy's deliberately doing gut shots on coyotes so his dogs can tear them apart afterwards 
while they're dying. Yeah. You Let's ever? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You ever hear this narrative that hunters have to stay to get stick together? Yeah. Yeah. I call it that's who that's the kind of shit that I'm being asked to stick together with. I'm like, no, I'm not on board. I no, no, and and it falls apart as as soon as you ask someone whether or not they want to reinstate punt guns. I mean, it's of course, what's a punt gun? Punt gun is what they were using during the market hunting, oh, mounting a, a fucking cannon on your canoe yeah they, they, wouldn't they have three layers levels of them right I think so. wouldn't they have one at water level and then another like fix mounted a little bit up and a little bit fix mounted up they may that. have and yeah. and i think they were stuffing all sorts of stuff in there for shot and okay and just decimating flocks um of course we don't want to go back to market hunting i i believe that the vast majority of hunters see the obvious flaws in that mentality when it's when it's put out in that regard i saw a guy you know the, this is a big point of controversy mm-hmm. is these people that run down coyotes on snowmobiles I, yeah and i i saw a video back in march of a guy running one down he runs it runs it down runs it over the snow's real deep so there's kind, it's kind of cushion yeah. when he goes over it doesn't kill it but he gets off the snowmobile and picks that thing up by the back feet and starts beating it on the front of a snowmobile <sighs> I, I i don't it, i i hope PETA wins if that's the alternative i i am so repulsed by that that's and, right and you know as a lifelong hunter don't i wonder if you feel the same i feel like I feel a level of ownership over this thing that I've done my whole life. Not like I have the right to tell people what to do, but I feel like I have the I have a right and a responsibility to say what it should be. And that is so offensive to me, you know, just like this video you described. Yeah. Like, and the, and shields Shields, it's like they're they're condoning that, they're yeah. endorsing it. You know, yeah, that was twenty some years ago. I was selling high school. Um, yeah, I don't know if Shields has really changed that much. I I genuinely mean that. I don't know. Yeah, and um, I don't either. I I, I get I get I'm I'm pretty I I'm pretty in a that there's one of those us bill in Billings. There's a Shields, and I'm always in a really good mood when I go in there. It seems yeah. like a real positive positive place. There's these mm-hmm. big aquariums with some cool looking fish. Yeah. Trigger fish and shit. And this big elevator, two story. I don't know. There's something Here's about that store. What? Yours is two stories. That's impressive. Oh, yeah. It's cool. It's cool. And I don't know. I, I get a positive vibe in there. I, I, I feel like they wouldn't do that now. I, you know, I a lot of things like that are. You're tempted to think that it there were they the that the executive committee sat around and decided whether or not they were going to put that vid, let let that video be shown in their stores, but it was probably left up to the auspices of whoever was in that department that day. You know, 
I really like, here's a VHS that somebody sent me. I'm going to throw it in. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, I I don't have a great pulse on this because I, I don't think I watched a ton of hunting media back in the day. Um, until I found your podcast, I was, I consumed a lot of meat eater. Um, your logic talked me out of that in short order. Um, but you know, going on, on social media, I swear you look at one hunting picture and all of a sudden when you hit search, it, it, the algorithm floods your, your options with the worst, the, the most extreme of what you just looked at. And, and there was another video there where, um, this, this coyotes approaching a hunter who's walking at him, short grass, they're in close quarters, really close quarters, and they see each other, it's obvious. Uh, the coyote's body language is, is he's relaxed. You can see how dogs, when they, they kind of smile with their eyes, you know? Yeah. When they're really relaxed, ears forward. Like um, this, this coyote is happy to see this guy. He's look, yeah, he's, and it's a weird situation. Like I, I'm thinking, I you I know a woman that used to have a coyote as a pet. Yeah, so I, anyway, I remember reading a book about a case like that, and the coyote was very um, oh, really nervous, oh. hyperactive. Uh, this wasn't that, and and I have to think it's because it's it's in its own element. It's whatever reason it's conditioned to. I'm guessing getting handouts from people. That's my guess. But anyways, mm-hmm. they're, they're closing the distance with, you, with each other. Um, all the coyotes' body language is saying, I'm relaxed. I'm expecting something good to happen here, right? Nose down, watching the guy, eyes are up. But, but you know, with that smile, the way they kind of squint with their eyes a little bit. You see yeah, 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 yeah. It's their way of smiling. Yeah. Eats are forward. And at 10 yards, the guy pulls the shotgun off hammers him and that is so weird and yeah and i mean mean, there's there's two way different ways in which that's weird mm -hmm. one is that he decided to shoot this thing and then the other is that he decided to show the world that that second one is what really bothers me now i Emotionally, I don't like it. I don't like any of it. Let me be clear about that. Yeah. But logically, I I accept that you may have a problem on your hands either now or going forward with a coyote that is so conditioned to humans handing things out that something might come up of this. Right. You, you do have some cases of coyotes attacking kids down in California yeah, right. and elsewhere. So I acknowledge that. Emotionally, don't like it at all. But the fact that this guy thought it was it was worthwhile to record it and put it online and believe that he would have enough of an audience to justify that speaks to something within our hunting community that is a real problem. And I I want to you read the out. comments. No, I didn't. I I didn't even click on it. Now with with that algorithm, they play the video. You know whether you click it or not. I, I was just watching and thinking, oh, this is really weird. A, a coyote and a hunter, what what could possibly happen here when, when they're 10 yards away? And then all of a sudden, you know. Yeah. It, I'd have it, picked it's, up a, it's, I would have picked up a stick and tried to get it to play fetch with me, I think. I, I think, yeah. <laughs> Let's see what happens if I throw a stick. But but to 
but it hit him at 10 yards. Um, and yeah, and I think there's an audience there. I mean, when a coyote getting hit at 10 yards, they don't just crumple. They, they rebound off the ground a little bit mm. you know, from the shot tearing through the body. Um, there, there's a jolt there. Okay. It's a little, it's, it's disgusting. And, yeah. and I, like I said, I don't have a great pulse on how much of the hunting community really gets into this. Um, because I'm biased, the, the media I do consume. I well, just to be clear, biased. neither of us are against Kyle. I would, argue, I, I, I'm gathering neither of us against Kyle. I'm not against it. I don't like it, but I'm I'm not against it. Yeah. No, I I, I do think that um, predators and invasives bring out the worst in us as hunters. Mm. You look at the rhetoric surrounding wolves, um, feral hogs, I, and I'm I'm all for shooting hogs. I want them wiped off the North American landscape. Really. I, I, I mean, they are a problem. Uh, you're probably right. You're but, probably right. But, th- but there's a part of me that's like, my. There's a naive part of me. They're, they're. It's weird. They're coming into Montana from the north. Same with North Dakota. Yeah, yeah. It, there's a part of me like that's like, wouldn't that be sweet if I could go out and shoot a hawk every year? I, I recognize that. I do. I, 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 and listen, there's part. But you of probably that. would. They probably take a hell of a toll on a lot of other things. Oh yeah, like trust turkeys. me. The light bulbs going off in my head too when I hear that. I, I mean, I, I think opportunity. I've got this is a great. I could get hundreds of pounds of pork in in the freezer, and and have one more reason to hunt. I understand it. But yes. from an environmental standpoint, we've got a real problem on our hands. Yes. And I think it's a little two-faced by the hunting community at large. So on one hand, say these are a real environmental problem and we got to take care of them and really, really put the hammer down. And then on the other hand, use them as a cash cow now because that's what they are in southern states. Mm. You know, it, yep. it's one more reason to to sell a lease to private land and go do your thing. You know, again, yeah. California, there's a lot of hog leasing of land for hog hunting there. Well, too. I'm thinking Texas, you know, the, the Taj Mahal, the private land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, hogs in particular, but but not exclusively with hogs. Um, we, we see this also play out with more and more uh, license for creativity on on how we can kill animals. And it's getting gross, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, uh, I I remember seeing a video a while back again on Instagram. I believe it was Instagram. It, it must have been high fence hunt or something. But at night, two guys in a side by side with night vision goggles, ripping through the grass. Hogs are scattering everywhere. The guy next to the driver is hammering them with with some semi automatic rifle. I don't know what, but at high speed mowing them down don't tell me those are ethical shots you know it's it's bloodlust it is what it is absolutely it is and i there's and i understand it the it's there there is a stage in 
human development mm-hmm. that likes that. I remember that. I remember as a kid I just wantonly killing chipmunks. Like, so I don't want to be too judgmental about it because we would just shoot chipmunks and be like, oh, we got them. Go look at the chipmunk. 13 striped gophers for me. Yeah. Yeah. And then we didn't take them home or cook them or anything. Just look. Oh, got him. Let's go get another one. But, but yeah. But these are grown adults. Yeah. And that's one problem. And then the other problem is they want to document it and show the world, which is Mm -hmm. so rude in my Mm -hmm. mind to other people. I'm somebody that doesn't think any of it should be shown. I agree. There's no upside to this. You've completely changed my mind on on my approach to this. At at the time, like I said, I was a big Meat Eater fan. Um, I I thought Steve really appealed to... uh, I I know Steve is off limits. I'll I'll stop that. No, no, I didn't. I don't. I don't tell people that. I, I, I just, you know, I don't, I'm try, okay. I try not to, to, I mean, it's just a cheap shot on my part if I were to fixate on Steve. So, oh, I, I, well, I mean, it, Steve, that, I, that whole thing is just his enterprise is just an example of what I struggle with. You know? Yeah. I, I have a lot of praise for Steve. I have a lot of criticism too. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, I, I don't want to make it sound one sided. Um, early on, I, I really liked what he was putting out there. I thought he um, he put a really good face on hunting. And uh, I, I thought of him kind of as the Anthony Bourdain of, of hunting in a lot of ways because he's appealing to um, a lot of the food. There, there are a lot of uh, noble elements that he brought into this. And it was just refreshing take on what has been a very stagnant uh, trophy-oriented industry prior to Steve coming on the scene. Now I think he's I think he's lost in his way in more than one case. Um, I mean he he doesn't he's made it clear on his podcast he doesn't like sports at all, and, and now he's hunting with pro baseball players. And it is, oh. it is I, I think the audience can smell bullshit. Yeah, and um, well, I, one thing I don't want to I don't I don't want to weigh in too much, but no, I, I don't I, understand how an outfit like that is is aggressively peddling quad runners that yeah, seems yeah, exactly antithetical exactly. to what they were all about uh but the thing is i'm more alarmed because i'm not i'm not i don't think that the antis are going to be the demise of the kind of hunting i care about i think what's yeah what is already what's going to be the demise of the kind of hunting I care about is commodification. And I and so we were talking about land trust earlier. I think land trust is the beneficiary and not just land trust, a lot of yep. private land lease companies and and companies like Mossy Oak and mm-hmm. Real Tree that sell land, etc. They're the beneficiaries of attractive hunting content. So yep. it's the tasteful stuff that's most insidious. It, it, exactly. it, it jacks up the value. That's that's the damn thing with commercials. It, it 
it's so insidious in how it flies under the radar. It appeals to either our base fears or our base attractions. It, typically, it's our base attractions, and it's like candy to kids. And, and mm-hmm. we can't help ourselves a lot of times and not consume it unless someone points out, you eat too much of that, you're going to have some real blood sugar problems way down the road. <laughs> you know, it, it's something bad. And if, uh, and if enough uh, if enough, enough wealthy people consume too much of it, you ain't ever going to have a place to go. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the thing. This, I, and I think a lot of people um, confuse defensive hunting to to keep antis away and and in so doing um hurt ourselves by bringing too many people in it it, it comes down to if, if i could summarize your movement and tell me if you think this is wrong at all but intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation right if that someone, seems i'm already on board yeah i i think so if someone grew up not hunting but but genuinely feels that this would better their lives and, and they want to give it an honest try. It comes from within. I welcome them. Yeah. And I, I would, I, I would say that there's a whole bunch of shit going on that is billed as trying to help them. That is not, that is not helping them. Largely. Yes. I, I think so. I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you in regards to backcountry hunters and anglers I'm I'm on the fence. I'm still a member. I don't know if I should cancel my membership or not. And and the reason why I I do see positives is they're instilling a culture that that does prioritize um largely caring for the land, um promoting public land, um habitat restoration. There are a lot of good things that I, I really value that that they are pushing, and and I see that as an upgrade to the entire community. If if we bring in new hunters, who who are immediately shown that this is what we need to prioritize, as opposed to, I'll say one of the worst things that could have happened to hunting was Steve going on Joe Rogan's podcast. Absolutely, and and as much as I will praise steve uh having rogan as a filter was was awful because the only sort of conservation anything he he retained was um pitman robertson and, and dingle johnson and and he uses that as a defense for hunting and how great we are for conservation and don't get me wrong that's great i i those two acts are phenomenal in terms of funding i don't want to diminish that but again, we're, we're talking money here, and, and that removes the relationship that we have to the landscape. Now, you take backcountry hunters and anglers, and, and they really do promote the, the public land cleanups and, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I see that as a counterweight. At the end of the day, though, I, I do side with you that it becomes a numerator-denominator thing, right? And, and, if, and if we can shrink down that that denominator of of whole number of hunters um where am i going with this uh the the numerator well this is falling apart in my head (laughs) what's that Uh, we we can we can bring in new hunters and increase 
the the total number and we'll have more good people in there who are prioritizing the right things but it, it still involves crowding whereas if we can change culture with existing hunters you know we're, we're not crowding as much but i don't know how well we can i, change I have hope for, culture i i have hope for bha but say that again i'm sorry i i have hope for bha but i i don't see as somebody the values publicly accessible non-pay hunting. I, I, I just to come down on, on them being more, more harm than good for it at the, at this point. I have hope yeah. that they'll they'll get their shit together. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not, I, I'm not completely writing them off. I'm 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 my hope in, in encouraging people to not donate to them is to put the screws to them and get to them to start focusing on what really matters and mm-hmm. and the idea that the, the 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 hunter recruitment thing well first of all it just makes it so that they're not that hunter recruitment bit which is a huge part of their platform, huge part of the platform. They have a lot of they have a lot of employees just devoted just to that. Oh, yeah, actually, they try to build it as conservation, which is unscientific because it it ignores the fact that intense hunting pressure is bad for wildlife. Yeah. So, uh, and and. They they're confused themselves about what they should be doing. They need that money. They need that they need that money. So they gotta stick. But what okay, here's a few, here's two things I'd say. One is they gotta stick with the industry because they need that money and the industry wants them to recruit more hunters. That's that's clear to me because how anyone in this world how any leadership team in a hunting org could decide the solution is more hunters at this point is laughable to me. So, uh, and they're so confused, in fact, that Montana BHA, so BHA is headquartered in Montana, Mm -hmm. and the state chapter this year sponsored a bill that would have capped, it failed, but it would have, capped non-resident bear hunters in Montana and it would have capped turkey hunting for non-residents in this state and then so they sponsored that bill another bill that failed is they they supported a bill that would have limited the number of days non-residents could hunt upland game birds in Montana so I don't understand what the message is i thought we wanted more hunters do we want more hunters but not just not in montana and montana's the state uh, is a state that's fan known for its hunting so yeah. where do you where do you want these more the more hunters if not here it's a short-sighted argument that falls apart pretty quickly so there's there's that and then i think why in the world would anybody donate to this outfit when they could donate to Hunters for Access 
exactly. our little nonprofit that is actually doing not bringing in more hunters, but trying to bring in more acres. Yeah. Let's bring in more acres and then think about how many hunters we should have. Uh, a Pollyannish argument, oh, and the, and they also will not come out against land trust. Yeah, who's is an outfit yeah. that's gobbling up shitloads of opportunity in the state, making it pay to play. So yeah. I, I just am so frustrated. We I live in the land of hunting celebrities, mm-hmm. I live in the land of hunting nonprofits, and I'm the only. My little group is the only one that's saying warning, warning. Do you care about? Pay to play. This is a big deal. They don't say a fucking thing, and they never no. will. No, I, I would say a Pollyannish argument in favor of their R three campaign is they are offsetting. Look, the hunting community. I think trends old white male, and and the truth is, old white males are dying. They're, they they have that's and, an and argument so, that, that holds weight for sure, and so. I, I don't believe this argument, but one could make the argument that they are trying to offset that and at the same time promoting their values and instilling them in in new hunters that are coming into the fold. I don't believe that. One, let me be clear, because every place I've been, going back to North Dakota every year to bow hunt, I've seen more and more hunters. Hell, last last fall, I've, I ran into, a, I think, a husband and wife, maybe boyfriend, girlfriend. They've got a camera like a, a whole handheld with a microphone thing. And I found their ground blind one day with, with the tripod in there. <sighs> They're filming shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm seeing more and more hunters there every year. Idaho. Well, it, it, yeah. And you don't even have to rely on anecdotes. Look at yeah. what's it, happened to opportunity. Right. Reductions in tag, in the number of tags allocated to non-residents, reductions in bag limits. Uh, things going from over the counter to draw. That is the norm of mm-hmm. the country. Across so you can, the you, you, you can make this demographic argument about baby boomers or what have you, but the, the fact of the matter on the top uh, is that on the ground, there's less and less for, there's less and less out there for the person that wants to hunt and doesn't, that is ideologically yeah. opposed to pay for it like me. Or can't afford to pay for it, like a lot of other people. You know? I agree. I do agree. Um, R three is outpacing whatever whatever death rates you have with 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 the standard cohort. Yeah, and I don't even think it's R three. I, th- I don't think our R three is being that particularly effective. I think it's hunting media. Uh, yeah, yeah, media by companies and person and and celebrities the reason i hound on the on the the nonprofit so much is because if you could get them to dispense with r3 the next step in my mind would be getting them to dispense to to discourage hunting promotion yeah yeah i I actually and actually look out for the existing hunting community yeah I, i was about to think Rogan might have even more of an influence, um, but what I think might have really done it is, I, I'd love to see some data on this if if you're aware of any, um, is what the pandemic did because it forced people inside onto their couches and watching Netflix, and I bet a lot of them came across Meat Eater, and and it was kind of a perfect storm where 
toilet paper is all of a sudden nowhere to be found and, and everyone's thinking well next is food and here this guy on netflix is putting a really rosy spin on how to take some autonomy over your food sources and, and gosh it gets you outside in the wilderness too it's perfect and that would well, okay so other recreation pursuits skyrocketed during the pandemic as yeah. well so that's well, something to keep in mind and I remember uh, turkey tags in Wisconsin, I want to say, uh, blew past what, what their version of Game and Fish anticipated. It, it, was, it was astronomical, as I recall. And, and I think that was kind of a common story across several states. Did you see the graph where we plot Google Trends? Yeah, it was on your uh, presentation, I think. Yeah, so yeah. We, we plot Google Trends hits for a bunch of hunting shows, including Meteor, yep. ag against draw odds. Yep. And the slope of that line, like draw odds were declining, and Google search interest in these hunting shows was increasing in a one-to-one -one fashion prior to the pandemic. Yeah. I'm not saying the pandemic didn't play a role, but that uh -huh. is definitely the case. So I, I I I am very open to the idea that the, the pandemic played a role in hunting and it certainly had to have played a role in other outdoor activities. Mm -hmm. I, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but it's hard to at the end of the day it doesn't it doesn't matter to me. I mean, you can't argue that honey media isn't bringing people into a pastime that's already well over what the resource can support. That's right. They're, they're 20 minute commercials is what yeah. they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is advertisement. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it's that, not fair to the people that do it for the purest possible reason. It's the people, people are doing it to make money and therefore negatively impacting people that do it for the love of it and don't have done it for the love of it longer than the celebrities have done it, or at least as long as they have in a lot of cases, you know, and then prioritizing the, the extrinsic motivations. Yeah. 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 Antlers, so. Largely. Yeah. Oh, the Big first different. half of this podcast was so was of this episode was, was so, uh, original where we just talk about a bunch of stuff and then now yeah. we're not now we're talking about all my pet shit our yeah. my pet shit yeah we'll, we'll try to climb out of this hole yeah um yeah any anything else in your notes that you want to think I've about out loud a with lot of stuff noises? Here, but it's 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 a lot of uh we can do another episode you're like my favorite guest i mean you're a really easy guy to talk to. About yeah, and I'm flattered. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'd be down for another episode. Yeah, well, we'll do part de. That's yeah. French for two. I know. Yeah. <laughs> hey, something I wanted to ask you. Um, if Oh, man, it's already 7 o'clock. Um, yeah, we should probably wrap up here. Um, are you aware of, of Donnie Vincent? I know that I've been... That name has been uttered in my presence. He's he's an interesting guy. Um, he he does post hunting media. Okay. In fact, he has his own production company. I think he does uh, commercials for Shields actually, and he 
he does some, not a lot, but he does some of his own long form videos too. I, I think you have to pay to see them so that I, I appreciate that. And in, in some sense, but he, um, he really does capture the, the reverence. It's, it's obvious when you watch his stuff. Um, okay. and he's, he's said in the past how he's, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. I don't, I'm, I just pulled him up on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, he said he's, he's so close to being, um, an animal rights activist. If, if he didn't know any better, uh, from his time being a biologist and a hunter, um, I, I, I really do think his heart is in a great place and I don't know if he'd be willing to have a chat with you. Um, but he's, he's maybe the only hunting celebrity. Well, I'll just periodically do a podcast search for his name and see if he's done anything lately. Cause I, I enjoy hearing just how his mind works. He's, he's a very thoughtful dude. Like I said, he's uh I think professionally he was, or is a bi wildlife biologist. Yeah, it says that right in his bio here. Yeah. Uh, I'll, uh, I will message him and see. It, it's surprising how many. It's surprising to me how open people are. Some people are. The, yeah. By the time our episode airs, this one will already have aired, but we're, we're Jim Durkin and I are about to. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, I got, I follow this parakeet site and I just accidentally hit the button for it. <laughs> I saw this video the other day. I, yeah, I'm kind of a, I'm, 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 kind, of, I'm kind of pathetic when it comes to watching like animal videos on social yeah, media. If you saw how many cat videos I follow oh, on Instagram, okay. you'd feel very comfortable saying whatever you're going to say about parakeets. I saw this parakeet, he's on the top of this ramp and he's on a skateboard. Yeah. You watch him purpose very deliberately scoot to the forward, to the front of the skateboard to make it start to decline down this ramp. He like gives it a little thrust and then rides it all the way down the ramp, slides out onto this big table and goes across the table and finally it stops. It's like, dude. You look at his face, you're like, you are proud of yourself, you know? I, I think I've seen videos like that before where they kind of flare their crest or something. and They, they just Yeah, like, yeah, they get, like, get all puffed up and like. Yeah. So Donnie Vincent. Oh, yeah. so what I was going to say is <laughs> I, we've had good luck getting people on that, that are people that we're not aligned with. We just, Jim and I just interviewed Jim Shockey. I think that's the next episode that's coming oh, out. Oh, good, good. I, I'm yeah. really curious about that one. So I'll reach out to to Donnie. I, I, now that I see his face, I know that I did. He like to hunt like ducks. His work. I, I really do. Um, I have two other names for you too. Um, I, I reached out to Hal Herring a while back because oh, he's coming on. Yes. Oh, that's great. He's he's one of my no 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 no. I always get him mixed up with somebody else. I, I, it's not I, him. It's I think it's he, the guy that runs the that does the BHA podcast. Yeah, that, that's that's how. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm getting him mixed up again. The other the guy I get him mixed up with is the chef. The oh, wrote, um, not Edward Garcia, but um, he wrote Duck Duck Goop Moose. 
Oh, um, oh my gosh, how am I blanking on his name? Um, I have like two or three of his books. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, Hale Hair. Yeah, I had his girlfriend, uh, his ex girlfriend. They're they're part of. Oh, I'm sorry. Shoot. The, oh, they sent out an email announcing that they had separated, which is hmm. one reason to keep your hunting private. You don't have yeah. to admit when you're if you're a hunting celebrity, you don't have to inform everybody on the plane when you break up with your significant other. I never, you know, I never thought of. Gosh, it's killing me that I can't recall his name. Um, I never thought of him as a celebrity, though. Like he was, I guess, in the cooking. They have world. a little thing called "To the Bone," which I think they're going to maintain. Oh, now that they're broke, even now that they're broken up, it was a hunting show. No, I think it. I don't think it's a hunting. Show. I think it's a a YouTube channel or something, maybe. But oh. yeah, I don't know. You have to you have to look it up. It's called To the that, Bone. That goes beyond just cooking. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't mm. know if it's yeah. I'm curious enough to, hey, to um, God dang it. What is his name? Um this is killing me. I can see his face. Uh, um Duck Duck Moose. Um Oh, this I'll think of it later. Um, I was going to bring up Hal Herring just because he is, in, in my mind, the example for for a guy who's who's poured his life into number one writing beautifully. I think I think most. Writers oh, he writes. He, he's a he's a very good writer. Oh, uh, Hank Shaw. Hank Shaw. There it is. Thank yeah. you. I like Hank. I, I really do. Okay. Um, I don't know much about him. I I really liked. Um, the podcast with Holly. Yeah, I, I enjoyed he, that episode. I've listened to Hank's podcast before. I forget. Oh, he has a podcast. Called. He does have a podcast. I don't remember the name. You could search his name, and it's going to come up right away. Um, and and it focuses a little bit on hunting, but but mostly how you're going to prepare what you've whatever they're discussing. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, he's he's I think he'd be a good guest. Um Hal, um, yeah, a, a pretty good writer. Um, I, I think writers tend to be very thoughtful people to begin with. You know, they they have open minds, they want to communicate new ideas. Hal is certainly one of those people. And um and he just strikes me know. as a type good to know. I just yeah. listened to a couple of his episodes and they've been very information based. Yeah. Uh oftentimes they are. Um, which great. He, he's dedicated his life to uh, a, a lot of restoration work, just boots on the ground, hard work. Um, he's he's lived that life, and and yeah, I, I follow his the the BHA podcast pretty closely. A lot of it is information based, but it it spans across the whole country, and, and a lot of times it will be pretty Montana centric. I think you're going to have a lot of uh, very local topics you could you could get in the weeds on with him and that'll be valuable yeah. but he could just as easily talk to you about his time and i think he grew up in north alabama i think uh, that's that sounds about right based on his accent yep yep and he's got a very very thoughtful approach to to the federal government um bha's mission 
for better or for worse, I, I think I think it's largely pretty good. Um, habitat restoration, wildlife in general, our relationship to all of that. Mm -hmm. Just a good, I thoughtful am, dude. Um, and in the last name I wanted to throw by you was, um, you ever hear the podcast Noob Spiro? Mm -mm. Spiro? Um, it's, it's an Australian guy. His nickname is Shrek. Um, uh, he, you can find him pretty easily, I think, on um, probably Instagram, but I know his podcast, and I'm sure his contact info is there too. And I can also get you his his name and email. I've, I've I'm texting. My, I'm texting myself right now. Okay, how do you spell it? N U N O O B O O B Spiro S P E A R O, and and it's a spear fishing podcast, kind of designed for people. Oh, you're a spear fisherman. Yeah, yeah, I love spear fishing. I'm, I'm still learning it, but um, that's that's kind of like my last bastion of hope if, if hunting really goes to shit. Yeah. Although yeah. that's although that although that's getting commodified more and more too. Now, yeah, now. yeah. Part of it is whatever your state gives you, kind of roll with it. And thankfully, yeah. That well, yeah, right. Thankfully, it's. Um, I don't want to talk too much about it. That's my thing. No, good, good. <laughs> Uh, right. But you know, whatever, I, nor whatever, whatever North Dakota gives to you in the way of spear fishing, man. <laughs> you and I can talk you, offline. You know, the worst place to be a spear fisher person is Eastern Montana. Oh my God, there would it would be fabulous if you could see. <laughs> you can't see. You can't see in the Yellowstone. You can't see in any of the reservoirs. You just Matt, can't see. Let's you and I talk offline. I uh, I have a thought or two, but I don't want to blow up any ideas. Oh, on a podcast. Okay. So okay, we'll get back. But have you followed um spearfishing uh, culture at all? Uh, Enough to know that it's kind of like the next arena of exploitation, as near as I can tell. You know, I I get the vibe, and maybe it's just his podcast, but I, I really do think it's more of an international spearfishing thing where they're much more conscious about. Um, the optics of posting a pile of dead fish on oh, on that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. But there's I, still I think... there's still more and more spear fishing influencers. This one, there's this one gal that she was a lawyer, and she's very oh, attractive. Uh, Valentine she... Thomas. Yeah, I yeah. I, I do follow her on Instagram. Um, yeah, yeah. Mix big. I mean, she's in one hand marketing spearfishing i'll tell you what it's going to become an issue crowding is going to be becoming come an issue yeah. I'll, already some of the places i've gone I, where yeah. i go most is in the bahamas i know what you're talking about yeah 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 those fish are quite wary now yeah joe schmo is showing and i'm joe schmo but at least i don't have to brag about it on social media right Right. Showing up on those reefs that's too often, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can promote hitting lionfish all day. Yeah, know? there you go. By all Which means, are excellent eating fish. I've I've heard that. Yeah, if you oh, they're, yeah, just, they're you good. They're just there's anything in the ocean. Yeah, you just gotta be careful. Let them have it. Yeah, and urchins. Go ahead and eat urchins. And oh, and why do you say that? Urchins. Because they're doing good, is that why you say that? Uh, you have those urchin barons in some places. 
urchin, just, urchin what? Barons? Where they, they just they overtake underwater. Oh, I didn't know that they became like invasive. Not not invasive, but overpopulated to the point where nothing else. Oh, you know, it's I'm, I'm dragging this on longer than I should. It, no, this is interesting know, to me. You know how um, the whole fuck the three fuck the three people listening to this. This is interesting to me. <laughs> you know how they uh, reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone, and they, and they made a big fuss about how it totally changed the ecosystem, mm-hmm. and, and how it brought beavers back and and knocked the elk back, and and it just and the aspen regeneration. Yeah, I I don't know how much of that is overblown and how much is true, but there's kind of a saltwater equivalent of when they eradicated sea otters and sea urchins just took off and, and oh. based on the videos it, it does look like all you see on the bottom are urchins and, oh. and supposedly when they reintroduced sea otters otters have knocked back those populations and and things have gotten a lot better i'm oh, not well, that, that, that's a pretty plausible story i'm with you who knows if it's but it seems plausible to me yeah yeah, I don't like. I only ate one urchin. It wasn't even that long ago. It was, was it good? Months ago, and mm, mm, maybe there's a way you could cook them. Cook them where this one was raw, and I was like, mm-mm, not for I don't me. Know. It's it's the gonads you're eating. It's, it's you don't irritating. like them either. I've never had one, but Rocky oh. Mountain oysters gross me out. So oh, I don't know if I want to eat an urchin. Oh, yeah. I just went out. It's just in the Bahamas. Couple months ago, I've eaten some balls. I've eaten steer ball, uh, yeah, bovine balls. I've eaten deer balls. I've eaten antelope balls. But we had some goat balls, and unlike every other time I cooked them or eaten them, I looked into how to cook them, and I liked them. I don't, I don't bring up any any kind of psychological shit into my eating. I don't think about what it is. Everything's on an even playing field for me. <laughs> I you can't know? help but do that. Oh, yeah. Like I, I look at mayonnaise and, and I understand the, the individual ingredients. But in my mind, if I were to mix those ingredients together, it's not going to look like mayonnaise. So I'm, mm. I'm grossed out by mayonnaise. Okay. Like someone's pulling the wool over your eyes. It's like if that's what was in there, it wouldn't look like this. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I got to explain what I'm about to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I've kept you pretty long here. Let's, yeah. Uh, uh, but this is a great conversation. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. Much. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how much substance there was, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Screw them. Screw all three of those. Screw all three of my listeners. If they don't like it, they can. What do you got now for numbers? They can tune. They can. They can tune in next week. <laughs> Okay, I'll look. I have no idea, and I really don't. So I'm gonna look for last week. Let's see how many I had. Last week it was it was Jim Dirk, and it wasn't even me. So if the numbers are low, it's his fault. Okay, that's that's the one I haven't gotten to yet. I'm one episode behind. Mm-hmm. Because I hear, I'm starting to hear your bullet points being discussed on other podcasts oh oh i i told you about that did did you get a chance to listen to that woodside episode no i haven't okay i need to yeah 
No rush. But I'm, there I were 590 that. listeners on the last episode. This episode, it only it it came out on Sunday. Yep. Today is Tuesday. Yep. And there's 247. Okay. So that's where we're at. People have uh, uh, several people have already emailed me and said they like this one. That's out. Oh, you, you might have been one of them with the with Scott Fitzwilliams. Were you? Did you say you? It's he's he heads up. He's the forest supervisor for the White River National Forest in. Colorado, the biggest national forest in Colorado in terms of visitation, maybe in terms of acreage too, I'm not sure. But okay. more visitors per year than Glacier and Yellowstone combined. And it's national forest, not even a park. Yeah. And we were talking about crowding and things like this. He's a great guy. He's helping us now. Oh, good. Good. He, he's, he's, I think he's going to start up a Hunt Quietly newsletter. Not in his f- official capacity, if anybody from his agency is listening. And and I want to make it clear, I'm not representing Washington Department of Health in anything I said either. <laughs> I'm not, not, not representing who, my employer, who I'm not even going to mention the name of. These are all I my just got. I just got in trouble for recording a podcast at work. Matthew. Not indicating who that I work for, and it was during off-duty hours. Matthew Ranella. <laughs> Shame. Never going to do that again. Never <laughs> going to do that again. Major source of stress. All right, Tim. Nice chatting with you. Let's do it again. You too. I, Take I care, feel Matt. like we night. left a lot. We didn't get to nearly as everything that we, we thought we would, so we'll do it again. Sounds good. Oh, Take hey, but let's hang on because you had some spearfishing tips. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk a little bit. All right.